So anyone in here hungry or thirsty? Yeah, I wasn't until Miss Kayla did the children's message and then all I could think about was a muffin with butter, not peanut butter, I'm more of a cheese melted on top guy. But you know what that means? If any one of us is hungry and thirsty, it means Jesus lied. I mean, did you hear the gospel lesson? Final words. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Yeah, this is the problem with literalism. Most of us understand Jesus wasn't talking about our stomachs growling or our lips being parched. But it can be hard to figure out when Jesus is being literal and when he's being metaphorical. I should also point out it's very important that we do understand which is which. I'm a big Elvis fan, and at the end of a couple of his live albums, yes, actual real vinyl, uh, the band continued to play, and then the announcer says, Elvis has left the building. Well, Jesus didn't have a band or an announcer, which is why some of the crowd wasn't aware that Jesus had left the hilltop. St. Mark tells us Jesus sent the disciples ahead in the boat while he dismissed the crowds. In John's Gospel, we learn some of the crowd was obviously in a food coma from all of the bread and fish they'd eaten. And when they finally popped out of the coma, they looked around because they were hungry again, expected Jesus to be right there to fill them up, and he was nowhere to be seen. And they knew there was only one boat. They knew the disciples had left in it, not Jesus. So they're trying to figure out, where's Jesus? If you've ever seen the movie Willy Wonka, you might remember the everlasting gobstopper, which, and I quote, is for children with very little pocket money. It not only changes colors and flavors, but also never gets any smaller or disappears. This is how at least some of the crowd viewed Jesus. They wanted him to be their everlasting fish and bread gobstopper. You know, during communion, I speak words that conservatively have been spoken a trillion times since the upper room. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, St. Paul starts out and then he gets to the words of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. Each time I hear those words, there is an uneasiness and a challenge to them. You see, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. And we must wrestle with what those words mean, not just theologically, but also very practically for our lives. Sixth chapter of John is about bread and wine becoming flesh and blood. And Jesus calls it real food. And that chapter ends with a bunch of people walking away from Jesus, saying this teaching is too hard for us to accept or understand. There was a movement in the late 60s and 70s that taught that Jesus never claimed that he was the Savior. His elevation to Saviorhood and the Son of God came in the 300s along with the Apostles' Creed. He was, at least according to this group, a Savior with a small s, not a capital S. Anyone who hadn't read the Bible and was looking for a best friend instead of the bread of life was excited about this possibility. All those really tough stories, all those really hard teachings, oh, they were just good advice from a friend, not God's Word. You know, as is the case with all heresies and biblical misunderstandings, there's always a grain of truth, an event, a conversation, a word choice that seems to support it, but only for those who are willing to completely ignore all the other events, conversations, and word choices to the contrary. The argument from silence can be used by just about anyone to make just about any point. The argument goes like this. Jesus never said anything about. 
And then they fill in the blank, whether it's gun laws, abortion, gender identity, or any of the other of hundreds of hot topics. Jesus never said anything about, and therefore it proves what that person is advocating. I've always loved the argument from silence. I love it because theoretically nobody should be able to fight against you, right? Because there's nothing to fight against except it has a fatal flaw. And somebody says, you know what, Jesus never said anything about, and then they fill it in and say, therefore it's okay. My response is always, you know what, you're right. But Jesus also didn't say that I couldn't tie you up, cover you with honey, and throw you on top of a colony of fire ants. That always brings back a very nervous reply of, well, everybody know that would be wrong. And I say, I'm just trying to do what Jesus never said. See, John 6 is as good as you are going to get to prove Jesus is the Messiah. You cannot read this chapter without finding a dozen different verses, all of which connect Jesus with the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah so clearly and completely that the two become one. Now, the reason so many walked away from Jesus is they wanted an everlasting uh, everlasting gobstopper, not a savior. I mean, they were okay getting baptized, And then they expected Jesus to feed them, clothe them, provide for their every need until they died at a very ripe old age after they'd done everything on their bucket list. And then they were whisked away to heaven where they got to sit on a throne of gold and reign forever and ever and ever. Well, especially ever. St. Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child, mostly because he was a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about the fact that babies drink milk. But when you grow up, you eat solid food. And then he says, there are a lot of Christians who are babies because they don't want to grow up. 25 years ago, our Savior would go to River of Life and take turns with other churches feeding the homeless and the hungry. Now, it's a rescue mission, which means you got to sit through the worship service before you can, uh, can eat. You're not allowed to arrive late. you got to go through the worship service. And so we would sit there and watch the group that was gathered. And they would be sitting in this room. By the way, you could smell the food. It would smell great. You could hear the, the chefs in the background clanging on the pots and the pans. But as you watch the crowd, it was interesting. Because there were those that were involved. They were worshiping. They were part of it. And then there were those who were clipping their fingernails. And then there were those who were sleeping. And then there were those who were moaning and arguing. And by the way, the moans and arguments had nothing to do with anything going on in the room. As Jesus begins to teach, the crowd starts talking among themselves. They push back against Jesus' teaching. They bring up Moses as their hero because Moses fed the nation for 40 years. (laughs) And so they kind of say, all right, so what are you going to do, Jesus? Prove to us that you're better than Moses. Prove to us you are who you really say you are. Just keep feeding us. I swapped the epistle from Ephesians 4, which is about the unity of the church, for the current lesson from the book of Philippians, where St. Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. I made the swap after Simone Biles stepped away from the Olympics gold in order to take care of herself. So what did you think about that? Because there are two trains of thought. One, that she cheated herself, her country, and all of her fans and the other where she did the right thing for herself, for her country, and for her fans. I'm in that latter category. See, I've never been much of a goals, vision, and mission statement guy. 
the whole vision statement thing, it does work for a lot of people, but not for me. You see, the problem I have with vision statements is they can lead to really bad decisions if you aren't careful. This is when Jesus says, you know, what good is it if you gain the whole world, if you get everything you wanted, but you forfeit your soul in the process? You see, there is always a price for what we want, and you can't cheat it. You or someone else is going to have to pay the price. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us in today's lesson. Do we really know what we want and, most importantly, what we need? And do we understand the price for it? So what are your core values? Now, core values aren't perfect. But when you have a solid set of core values, it makes life simpler and more fulfilling because instead of making decisions, you just have to manage it. You see, you already made your decisions. You said, this is so important to me that I will never sacrifice these things. So when it comes time that you have to choose, you've already chosen. Now the difference, the difference between mission and vision statements and core values is actually pretty simple. Mission and vision statements start with the end goal and they build backwards. You set your goal and then you figure out how to get there, what you need, and how you're going to get it. Core values start with how you want to live, the things that are important to you, like family, health, workplace balance. And then you figure out what that will allow you to do. Your limits are set on the front end. One way I've found to explain this is two people, both of them, have a big bag of Legos. Now, the bags are not identical because people aren't identical. A mission and vision statement has you decide what you want to build and then open the bag and start arranging the pieces to create your vision. Now, if you happen to have all the pieces you need, great. But if you don't, you have to figure out how to get what you need to finish your vision because you have said that you are defined by your vision. Your vision is who you are. This is the part that can and often does go badly, especially, by the way, when you are facing a lot of outside pressure. Core values how you start with opening the bag, seeing what you have. You then establish what's important and work to use what you have to accomplish what you have decided is important. Always keeping the main thing, the main thing. Because you have your priorities straight, it allows you to manage your decisions, freeing you up to say no or to walk away from something that would be harmful or against your core values. And by the way, because you have decided this is who I am, this is what's important to me, there are no apologies necessary. You're able to say, this is me. I'm sorry if you don't like it, but it's who I am. And it's who I've decided to remain. When Jesus tells the crowd his flesh and blood are true food and drink, I know it sounds like an Alfred Packer Lunchable, but he needs them to understand how much they need God. Remember those silly love songs from the 70s? You're the air that I breathe. I can't live if living is without you. Love will keep us together and Abba's knowing you, knowing me. They were all satirized in Paul McCartney and Wing's song, Silly Love Songs. But even after Paul McCartney recorded that, people continued to write and sing silly love songs. Why? Because people are always trying to come up with ways to express the inexpressible. When Jesus says true food and drink, he's using the Greek word aletheia, truth. It literally translates that which cannot be hidden. Last week I mentioned the Greek word meno, which translates as abides. It means more than just hanging out together at a picnic and eating until you can't eat anymore. It means to be immersed, soaked, filled, so that there's no room for anything else. So notice, what Jesus is saying is, this meal I'm offering you is something that cannot be hidden. And it abides in you. It fills you until there is no more room.
The people that afternoon were starving and they were thirsty. But every time they ate and drank, they just got hungry and thirsty again. That's when Jesus says, you know, God is offering you bread from heaven. And they all jump up and down and say, give us this bread always. Yay! So, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Does your life have an emptiness you can't fill? Are there things you don't understand? Jesus' words about flesh and blood, bread and wine, draw life and death and eternity into a sharp focus. Eat this bread, you're going to be hungry again. Drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But then he lays all his cards on the table. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Is he being literal, metaphorical, or theological? The sheep and so, uh, the goats get separated at his words. Those who want their stomachs filled separate themselves from those who want their souls filled. Jesus brings eternity into the moment, and he lays it before him, that which cannot be hidden. There isn't enough bread or fish or wine or anything else to fill the soul. There will always be questions that cannot be answered, pains that cannot be medicated, people who cannot be saved, moments that cannot be relived. Even if there was an everlasting gobstopper, it wouldn't remove all the hunger and pain and lostness and questions. So now what? C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you will get neither. If the people were listening and could hear over their rumbling tummies in the absence of an everlasting gobstopper, the creating infinite God of the universe agreed to meet his people in something as simple as bread and wine a holy meal where he would empty them of their sin and fill them up with himself. Or as Jesus said, where God and his people would abide, not just for a moment, but forever. We are hungry and thirsty people. Where does that lead us? Back to our core values for a minute. What are the most important things in the world to you right now? All of life is about prioritization. There must always be the most important thing. And then the second and the third and the fourth and on down the line. As C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven. Not to the exclusion of this world or this life, but as the one thing that defines the rest of your being and your life. See, the one thing that both drives you and allows you to say no because you know what is truly and eternally important is your core values. Whether you have defined them intentionally or not, you see, it's easy to find out who we really are by looking at our checkbook, our credit card statement, our planner, by just following us around. We can say what's important, but what really defines us is what we make important. It was the prophet Jeremiah who said, Your words, O God, were found and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart. Again, that literal thing, because Jeremiah didn't literally eat his Bible, because that would be really messy, even if you had a lot of hot sauce. But he did take God's word into his heart and into his soul. And he found what he was looking for, what no one else could do for him. And so for us, not just in the wafer and the wine, but also in silence and music, study and fellowship, worship and service, that's where we find our hearts and souls opened as God empties us of the things that are not eternal and fills us up with those things which bring delight and joy to our life because they are everlasting and everlasting. As always, it comes down to who do you think Jesus is and what do you expect of him? If all you want is an everlasting gobstopper, you're going to be disappointed. 
If you're looking for someone to love you through all the holes and gaps and weaknesses in your life, who loves you just because you are you. Oh, and by the way, he knows the real you. He knows everything about you. And yeah, he still loves you. If you're willing to kneel or stand or sit at the table and let his word and a tiny wafer and sip of wine be his promise, you'll never be disappointed. St. Paul said, I've learned to be content no matter the circumstances. That's a pretty bold statement. If you've ever read 2 Corinthians 11:25 and all that he went through because of his faith, the shipwrecks, the viper bites, the beatings, the stonings. He was content because the world couldn't take from him the one thing that he said was the only thing that mattered. And that was his faith in Jesus. Immersed and soaked in the word of God, he knew who he was. And he knew who Jesus was. And where he was going. To a banquet where the people of God were, would feast forever. In the presence of their Savior. Where they would abide with God forever and ever and ever. He wasn't tempted to trade it for an everlasting gobstopper or anything else. Because Jesus filled him in a way that nothing else could. That brings us back to the opening words. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. The only way to really find out what that means is to abide in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.